Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet actor and writer Jim Piddick. For four decades, he's appeared on Broadway and on big screens and small screens in movies like Independence Day, Lethal Weapon 2, A Mighty Win, Austin Powers, and Goldmember, and shows like Modern Family, Mom, Two and a Half Men, Lost, Monk, Friends, the list goes on and on and on. Jim looks back at his career in a funny and frank new memoir called Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood. It's available now wherever fine books are sold, and we'll tell you all about it a little bit later on. First, let's get to know Bonnie Stern. If you're a foodie, or maybe even if you aren't, you already know Bonnie. She's studied and taught cooking around the world, hosted three national cooking shows, and for 17 years wrote a weekly food column for the National Post. Her latest cookbook, Don't Worry, Just Cook, co-written with her daughter Anna Rupert, aims to take the intimidation factor that some people feel every time they step into the kitchen away. It's filled with delicious, widely appealing, and timeless recipes, and it's just perfect not only for home cooks, but for anyone who loves food. Bonnie Stern, join me via Zoom. Tell me a little bit about what originally sparked your interest in cooking. I realize that I've been watching you cook for <laughs> years, but I don't really know what originally started you on this journey. Well, I've always loved to cook. Even when I was a child, I loved to cook. And I um, I went through university and I graduated in English literature. I was going to go through and become a librarian. And I was a very shy kid. And I really never wanted to be a teacher or anything like that. And so, but I loved to cook. And so just before, and this is in the 70s, right? The early 70s, when nothing much was going on with food and who would ever have believed food would become what it is now today. <laughs> I mean, I certainly didn't think that. In, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll do something in cooking or just take a year off from school, like the original uh, year off. And nobody did that then. And then I would go back and do my master's in librarian sciences. And so I, uh, and so I went to George Brown College, and my parents had a nervous breakdown. And <laughs> I mean, food wasn't, um, food wasn't a career, then. And George Brown wasn't the sophisticated or the elite kind of place it is today where people will come out with television shows and all. And I mean, this was not even in, like this was way before anything like that. And so um, I, I sort of pushed through and I went to, I went to Georgetown college and I was just so happy. I mean, I, I loved learning about food. I loved learning about everything to do with it. I took a two year food and restaurant and management course and um and by the end, I never wanted to have a restaurant. <laughs> and, I think that's probably the best lesson you can learn from taking that yeah, course is to never, probably. ever run a restaurant. <laughs> For sure. And um, and I never did want to. So so what happened was I, I started helping the chefs there do their mm -hmm. demonstrations at different places. And, and 
somehow when I was talking to people about food, I came out of myself. And so if you have any kids who are shy, if they find their passion, it could be a big thing for them. And now, of course, you know, teachers in school will make kids do presentations and get used to it gradually. But we never had that kind of thing when I went to school. So I avoided it even all through university. And so it was a shock that I could speak to people <laughs> and talk to people about food and teach them about food. And I think I just kind of emerged as this Pollyanna who was excited about and in those days, too, food was a chore. You know, there weren't as many restaurants, takeout places, um, anything like that then. So people, even if they didn't cook all the time, they had they had to cook. And so having someone bring sort of joy into it, that's how I'm interpreting it, <laughs> uh, really helped people and, and really was a wonderful thing. So um, that's what happened. Yeah, if you think back to the food culture of the early 70s here, you know, Greek food would have been almost impossibly exotic. And you'd have to go to, you know, a certain part of town probably to get it or something like that. It really wasn't uh, as broad based now when I think uh, where I live, uh, I can go out the front door of my house and, and, sure. and get almost anything from almost any part of the world that I want. That was certainly not the case. Uh, do you like do you sometimes marvel i guess at at how quickly food has become uh, uh so important to people in a way it's not just fuel anymore uh it is a window to the world it is you know a, a, just a, 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 comfort a, yeah is it do you ever marvel at that how much the food culture has changed i marvel at it all the time you're listening to bonnie stern on the richard krauss show her new cookbook don't worry just cook is available now wherever fine books are sold it's just unbelievable like if you were there then and you're here now <laughs> it's it's like the difference between night and day really and i mean we couldn't there's so many things i mean things that we take for granted balsamic vinegar extra virgin olive oil um all kinds of things that we just take for granted and we are very lucky in toronto i have to say that we can get just about everything we want even if we have to go somewhere special we can get just about everything we want spaghetti that doesn't come in a can that was a revelation <laughs> <laughs> so the cookbook is called don't worry just cook uh, delicious, timeless recipes for comfort and connection. And hearing you talk about the connection that you made with the people at George Brown, uh, seems like it's almost come full circle here. You, you're looking at food again in this book, which is your 12th or 13th cookbook, mm -hmm. uh, as, as a way of really connecting with people. Um, Tell me uh, a little bit about coming up with that theme. Uh, all cookbooks I, I, these days seem to have a theme. Where did you uh, come up or why did you come up with this theme? Well, it was really my daughter, Anna, who I wrote the cookbook with that came up with the theme, if you will. Um, and we wanted to do a cookbook. I've wanted to do a cookbook since I closed the cooking school, but nothing seemed right. It didn't fall into place. I, I didn't feel comfortable with anything. And um, when she sort of volunteered to help me with that, and even though she is a speech pathologist, she is a wonderful cook and she's a beautiful writer. And she said she would help to translate, when I say translate, translate my long lengthy stories into something <laughs> that are very 
concise but funny and cute and warm and wonderful. And she just did it such a wonderful way. And she certainly helped with the book much more than we thought her mm. and myself at the beginning. But one of the things that she wanted is she wanted a title for the book. And I I said to her, don't worry, you know, it'll come after, after we finish the book, the title will just emerge. And she said, no, she wants to know the direction that we're going. Mm. And so she said, are there any sort of family sayings or is there anything that you say to your students or people all the time? And I say, I always tell them not to worry, never thinking it would be the title of the book. <laughs> and she said, well, what about don't worry, just cook. And then we ran it by the publisher and we ran it by a lot of people and they just loved it. And so that's how it kind of evolved. And this was during the pandemic when people were pretty isolated and um, people were lonely, people were frustrated. And um, and that's really what we wanted to say about food being a connection to other people. And now coming back out of it a little and people maybe entertaining for the first time since still maybe a little nervous. Um, the idea of it was to bring comfort for the person who's cooking and for the people who are coming over and connections and realize that all the fancy food that's being promoted is not the important thing about cooking and food. The important thing is what it means to people that you are welcoming them and cooking for them and nurturing them both emotionally and physically. And, um, and that's how it came about. You are uh, not only a cookbook writer and television host, but you you teach people how to cook as well uh, in person, one on one, and in classes. Is the the fact that people worry about the food that they haven't yet made uh, uh, one of the biggest obstacles to get over when you're teaching someone how to cook? Just the confidence of saying it'll be fine. Just exactly. get to it. Exactly. And I think people do worry about being a failure or they mm -hmm. worry about it not being as beautiful as they see it on Instagram or TV <laughs> or worry about this or worry about that. And I think that if you change the you change you change the meaning of why they're doing it and that they're doing it to give something of themselves to someone and it isn't really important how it turns out mm -hmm. or not. And and also remember, and I'm not saying it isn't expensive. If something is wasted, I'm just saying that there is another meal coming very soon. <laughs> and it's not the end of the world if it isn't the best meal in the world. So I think that once people kind of relax a little bit, but what you were saying is important. And I think one of the things that the Don't Worry business came from also is that because I did teach for so long and still teach a little, um, people tell me what they're worried about and tell me. Mm -hmm their problems before and after, and all say in recipes, you know, it might look a little lumpy, but don't worry. Or And after we came up with the title, actually, uh, Anna did a search of how many times in recipes we said, don't worry. And we had to take some of them out because it was like in every single recipe. Do the recipes come first when you're uh, creating a book like this? Or does the idea come first? Which is, which is it, the chicken or the egg? Well, I think it is. It isn't that. Um, it it isn't that decisive. It's more. Is that a word for this? Mm -hmm. um, it, I think it's more that because 
I hadn't written a book in so long. I had a lot of recipes I would include if I could. So I did, I was very lucky that I had a huge amount of recipes kind of to choose from for the book. And, I, but I wanted them to be meaningful to me or to Anna or in some way and have a story with them. There's very few recipes, I think, without a story. And they had to be recipes that were delicious, of course, and that I love, but maybe that weren't, um, but they, they didn't have to have like necessarily uh, a legitimate thread mm-hmm. to them. So um, when we chose the recipes, they they were recipes that were important to us as opposed. So it's a bit of a memoir in a funny way, yeah. talking about guests that were at the cooking school or, you know, where I learned this or where I traveled from or to. And um, and, and so I think it was kind of a combination of different things. Uh, it wasn't cut or dried. One of the easy things I think that it's probably easy to take for granted is how long it takes to test everything that you're going to put in a cookbook. I once worked on a cookbook many years ago, uh, and uh, I was trying recipes at home. Uh, it was in connection with a restaurant that, of course, had a much different kitchen that they were trying their recipes out in. And we would try things to be almost exactly the same list of ingredients, the same, and they would come out completely differently because I had a little electric range and they were cooking on a very fancy you know, gas range with everything else. So tell me a little bit about that process, how you work through that so that you know that these will work at home for people and not just people that have wolf gas ranges and, you know, hoods in their houses and all that stuff. Well, it is funny that you mentioned this because um, during the pandemic, I did have my oven um, go, go on the fritz mm. and I, I have this little, um, what do they call them? Um, I have a an oven. Like a toaster little, oven? But a bigger toaster yeah, oven. Yeah. What are they called? It's a Breville one. And yeah. it's really wonderful. And the thing about that oven that's amazing is that it's right on the mark of 350 or whatever you set it to. It heats up in less than five minutes because it's smaller. And I did a lot of my recipes <laughs> in that little oven, smart oven. I think they're called smart ovens. And um, and it's smart. I mean, it was smart. <laughs> and uh, honestly, like I've had so many different ovens at my cooking school and at home, and I've had so many different brands, and I've had so many different everythings. And that little oven just was terrific. So <laughs> what I'm saying really is that I don't think that you really need a lot of fancy Mm -hmm. equipment to cook. I don't think that you need a lot of fancy ingredients. And I've given lots of suggestions on you can use this instead of this, or if you don't have this, or, you know, my daughter is gluten-free, my husband is lactose-free, you know, and that's me, my life. And so whatever your life is, you can handle it if I can do it too. And uh, lots of different ways to serve things. So I think I've covered a lot of that. I understand completely what you mean about the difference between restaurant cooking and home cooking. And I've always been a home cook and I've always promoted home cooking because of that feeling that you have when you cook for someone. I mean, I love going to restaurants and I love restaurant food too, but I don't fool myself about who's cooking it and why they're cooking. You're listening to Bonnie Stern on The Richard Krause Show. Her new cookbook, Don't Worry, Just Cook, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Your cooking shows actually taught people how to cook. 
<laughs> that seems to be something, though, that is lacking from so many. When you watch food television these days, uh, they're competition shows. We get to see people create something new out of leftovers or they're, they've got 20 minutes to make a gourmet meal, whatever it might be. But we're not really learning anything anymore. And that, to me, feels like a loss. I wonder how you feel about it. I feel about the competition shows, to be truthful. They make me very nervous to watch. Like, mm. I get very anxious. And I don't think that I could ever have done it then or now because mm -hmm. I would be really anxious. And I give those people a lot of credit who are competing and not having a nervous breakdown because I think I would. <laughs> and um, I, but what I don't like about them is that I think cooking should be something that people do together. And especially, I mean, the way even even though in a restaurant, it's still tough and it's really tough. In my mind, people are working together to create a meal. You know, one chef does this, another chef does this, another chef does this. And everybody's doing sort of a different part of the meal, but it comes together. And if you don't work together, if everybody's fighting, which does happen, you know, you try to make that go away, not promote it. Yeah. And this is almost like making cooking into a sporting event, you know, and that that bothers me a lot. And I don't watch it a lot, but there are a lot of shows, even, you know, people like Jamie Oliver or mm -hmm. Patty Hinnich and, you know, people who are doing cooking that you should be doing at home or that you can do at home and that it's joyful and that it isn't that difficult. And I think Jamie Oliver shows work so well because he also uh, tells you where the food comes from. Often mm -hmm. there's a backstory. We see him go to a farm and, and get the, they have spinach that day. So he comes home and makes something with the spinach that you could actually make at home as well. And there's just something that I kind of like about that. When I grew up, we used to go to the farms in the area and, and get produce and food and whatever they had was kind of what we were going to be eating for the next week or so. And I, I kind of feel that way when I watch uh, uh, so, several of his television shows. It's really true. And I think that he, he is kind of down to earth and mm -hmm. Uh, he does help people a lot, and it's approachable. I guess that's the word, approachable for people. Yeah, he once cooked for me, and oh, yeah. it looked so simple what he was doing, but he just <laughs> has the little flick of the wrist and everything and salt and peppering things, oh. and it was so good. It was so, so good. It was on a TV show that I was on. He was a oh. guest, and it was mind-numbingly good. I've met but, him a couple of times, yeah. too. I interviewed him for the National Post, and, mm. and he – He's, he's, I, I think he's good, really good. What has writing cookbooks and teaching and all the other things, the television shows and everything that you've done, what has it taught you about cooking? I, I think it's, I, I think what it's taught me is that home cooking is the most important thing mm. and that, um, the welcome is the most important part of home cooking and the feeling that you give to people and um, the camaraderie and the joy of being able to help people either cook or eat or, or relax. You know, people are very frustrated, tense. It's a funny time in the world right now. Mm -hmm. It sure is. And I think food is one of the bridges that will uh, help sort of bind us all together. I agree with you completely. And that's what the, the the subtitle of your book is. Don't worry, just cook delicious, timeless recipes for comfort and connection. Uh, Bonnie, thank you so much for speaking with me today. 
Richard, thank you so much for inviting me on your show. You've been listening to Bonnie Stern on The Richard Krause Show. Her new cookbook, Don't Worry, Just Cook, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Bonnie is the founder, of course, of the Bonnie Stern School of Cooking, author of 12 best-selling cookbooks, host of three national cooking shows, and instructor at the James Beard Foundation. In the new cookbook, Don't Worry, Just Cook, written with her daughter, Anna Rupert, Uh, She shares 125 recipes that will give every tentative home cook the courage to get in the kitchen and make delicious food. In his new book, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, veteran actor Jim Pittock calls Larry David a very bad name and shares stories of his four decades working on Broadway and in Hollywood. Along the way, he picked up some life lessons while working in movies and television shows like Lethal Weapon 2, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind, Modern Family, Two and a Half Men, and Lost. And he shares those stories in the book. Jim Pittock joins me via Zoom from his home in the Hollywood Hills. We'll start with uh, something that I just thought was uh, very cool in that you have an English pub in your house. That must have been uh, some kind of comfort to you, I think, during the pandemic when you were uh, what's the term that you use? Uh, pandemically tainted for, yeah. the, uh, for the last couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> when I bought the house, it was the cherry on the cake. I found this. It's the tiniest pub in the world. It's like about 10 or 12 foot by 12 foot. So I guess it was a storage room underneath the house. But the, 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 it's brilliantly done. And it's, it's so authentic. It even smells like an old British pub. Uh, country pub because of the, the creosote that they used in the 1930s underneath the, the beams. Um, to, to be honest with you, it must have been, it, it's a complete folly. I should have converted it into a voiceover studio or a gym or something years ago, but I can't. It's just, it's a museum piece and people just are blown away when they see it because they walk in and go, I'm in a British pub. Um, so it, it hardly ever gets used. I think we've had one small party where we, we, uh, a friend of mine who owns a brewery in California had always wanted to be behind the bar serving his own beers. And so he, he's a, a multi-squillionaire, but loved being landlord for an evening behind in the pub. There's life lessons that are sprinkled throughout the book. I'd like to ask you just for your comment on them. So Paul Schrader, there's a story here, which perhaps you can uh, talk about, but that one is never judge a book by its cover. That's the, the lesson that I took away from that. It's essentially uh, a book full of anecdotes and mm-hmm. stories. And I wanted it to be, <clears throat> my life story isn't of interest particularly to me. So I didn't think it would be of interest to too many other people. <laughs> so I wanted to structure it around my career and, and, and what, you know, that journey that I've gone through but basically, it's more outward looking than inward looking, um, which is pr- probably the right way to go. Um, <laughs> so it's more like in the vein of the, the David Niven kind of books or, or even um, Gerald Durrell, My Family and Other Animals, where it's about other people as much as it's about me and my reaction to them and how I, I perceive them. Uh, and, and that was one uh, you've picked out one particular story that was, I mean, about, um, you know, how, how you shouldn't always jump to conclusions uh, and the, uh, this was being it was in a hotel bar in, in Bucharest. And I there was this sort of very <laughs> drunk guy at the bar who I thought was, you know, a bit, he looked just like an American businessman, the sort of average 
you know, conservative uh, sort of uh, loud American that's, that's, that's now been sort of probably replaced by the loud Brit abroad. Um, and, and everyone was sort of fast disappearing. And I got stuck there because he sort of yelled out to me, I will buy you a drink. And um, I was, I've really got to go. I've got to work tomorrow. I'm shooting. And no, 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 no let me give you a drink. And so I, I, I kind of ended up at the bar uh, sort of quickly tolerating this situation going, oh, God, how can I get out of this? This is really awful. And the guy says, yeah, yeah, I'm in show business. And I'm like, oh, here we go. You know, makes porn movies in Eastern Europe or something. And then he said, yeah, yeah. And then I told him, he said, what do you do? And I explained. And I said, I'm also a writer. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm a writer too. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> and then I, he said, what, what have you written? And I told him a couple of things. He said, oh, yeah. And I said, what have you written? Dreading the answer. And <laughs> there was a beat. And he said, I wrote a film called Taxi Driver. Uh, I was like, oh, and then he held out his hand and went, uh, my name is Paul Schrader. And um, he was uh, very drunk. But then I've actually seen an interview with him when he's sober and he sounds the same. He's got this kind of slurry. You're listening to Jim Pittick on The Richard Krauss Show. His book, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, is available wherever fine books are sold. We, we kind of then talked. I mean, we had a lot of mutual people we knew in common, like George C. Scott, we'd both worked with them. Mm. Um, and, the, and, and the, the longer the evening went on, the more I became the best person he'd ever met in show business. And um, he offered me a part in the film that he was doing in, in, in Romania that I couldn't be in. I said, I've still got five weeks to go here. I'm shooting. I can't do two films at the same time. He said, oh, yeah, you can. We'll work it out. You're going to be brilliant in my film. And, and, and then um, we kind of ended the evening quite late. And, and I was glad I didn't have to actually shoot the next day. I think I was using that as an excuse. And I got up late to head down to lunch and um, and saw him in the in the elevator and he looked like death. And I, I wasn't sure if he even remembered who I was. And I said, oh, it was great talking to you last night, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, yeah, yeah, I was really drunk. I was really, really drunk. And we shook hands when the elevator got to the ground floor and I went off to lunch and he went off to whatever he was doing. And of course, I never heard or saw him again. <laughs> Um, but but it was it was just yeah the, the, as you say the story like that which is kind of amusing I hope in the telling of it and when when you read the book uh, 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 it does I usually have a conclusion at the end of each thing mm -hmm. you know and you also talk a great deal in the book and and it's inferred by some of the stories that you tell uh, about risk taking about uh, pushing yourself always. And there's a lot of really interesting uh, talk near the end of the book about the choices that you make. And obviously making a choice to take a risk is a choice, but you say something, and I've got the quote here, um, they define your destiny. The choices that you make define your destiny. Talk a little bit about that, because I think we all in our day-to-day, -day, we talk about, or we at least think about the decisions that we make, what you're going to have for breakfast, what you're, when you're going to go out for a walk and take in some sunshine, but it's a bigger Yep. question than that that you're asking and answering in the book i think it is and it was a th sort of three bigger themes that emerged from my telling all these silly funny stories and uh, and one was my eternal search for family which comes mm -hmm. through and i kind of figured that was what the book was a lot of it was about and and our as a human race our search for family what is the meaning of family and then you're right as it were that the, the idea that choice is totally different. And I do believe that, that every single choice, every minute, every second of your life, you're making a choice. 
I could tell you a story now about something or I could tell you a story about something else. One story may change somebody's life if they hear it. One may not. May, whatever I say will probably just, you know, go over people's heads or not. But, but everything you do. And, um, you know, sometimes we have uh, they are choices that we instinctively make. Sometimes they're conscious. And I do think that that actually defines who you are and what your life will be. And um, obviously people are born into different circumstances. Some people are born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Others aren't. But you see people time and time and time again who come from the worst possible circumstances um, make the very, very most of their life and, and the reverse, uh, true. Uh, and and I, I'm not saying anything new or original, but it's very, very clear to me looking back because I don't look back on my life very much. Mm -hmm. I look forward or right in front of me. So the pandemic gave me this chance to look back uh, when I'm in my early now mid 60s and, and, and so take step off the merry-go-round and, and sort of try and make sense of it. And I hope that in doing that, uh, it will be of, of interest to other people because I think it applies to everyone, whatever industry you're in, the lessons and the things I say in the book apply to any person in any walk of life. And that is really one of the major things. And the other third theme that comes through is, is the fact that it, it's, um, that, that life, has to be lived to the fullest you know we so many of us get caught in a rut or uh, and, and caught in something we don't want to be doing um, and we feel like we're treading water uh, and and that's interconnected because if you do make choices to change that your life will move and you'll get out of that rut and so I, I, i'm making it sound like it's a self-help book which it clearly is not um and none of these things are as i say particularly original ideas or thoughts but hopefully i convey them in a way that may actually just open a door to people to go oh yeah i've heard that said before but now i see why uh and i hope that's all i can hope that it has a much wider appeal than people who are interested in show business or you know, in a Brit thing in America or whatever. I, I, I think that's almost irrelevant. Can you pinpoint a choice that really changed your life? There's in the book, you mm. talk about a lot of different things, a lot of choices that you make, uh, you know, doing a one man show in San Francisco, four months later, you're on Broadway. There's, there's all sorts of choices that are involved in each of these, these yeah. uh, moves in your life. But can you pinpoint something that just really changed everything for you? Well, I think that you you just hit on that. When I first came to America, I literally had $100 in my mm -hmm. pocket. I'd been offered a job directing at the drama school I'd been at, who opened in Berkeley. And I had, before I came, thought, you know what? While I'm there, I might have a bit of spare time on my hand. I, I'd seen a one-man show in England and loved it. And I approached the writer, and who was a very successful writer, and he said, yeah, you can have the option to do in America is a good luck. A play about a soccer goalie in a country that doesn't even know what the word soccer means. Right. Uh, an hour and a half one man show. If you can get it produced, all power to you. And I went around every theater in San Francisco in my spare time uh, in that three months that, that I was working there. And, and everyone rejected me, of course. They were like, unknown British actor with this play about thing. No, no, no. But at the last minute, just as I was about to fly home to England uh, and, and try and resume my kind of career there um this director from a small 1990 theater said oh uh, do you still want to do your one-man show we've had a show fallout can you get it up in three weeks and i hired a director who was terrific richard side and he 
get, train me and it was a nuts show. I mean, it was physically the most demanding thing anyone could ever ask. And the, the, the kind of the miracle of the show is that the actor is still alive at the end of it, running, <laughs> jumping, you know. It, and anyway, the show had four people in the audience in the second night and um, they all sat in the front row. It was a very intimate experience. And as you say, the, the reviews came out the next day and it was sold out for the next don't know how many weeks and then extended and extended. And that took me to New York uh, because a producer had heard about it there. And they ended up not doing the show. Someone else did later. But the, when I was then in New York, but I'd already had a tape of the show and that got me an agent and I got an audition. And that first audition, I got cast in George C. Scott's Present Laughter, which he was directing at the Noel Cowd play and he was starring in. And I literally went, as you say, from being nowhere to starring on Broadway and in a hit show in the space of, it was about actually closer to six to seven months. And that that taught me that take risks, don't, you know, think nothing's going to come of this because it can and all that work you put in. I mean, you can see I'm sitting in an office now with loads of scripts on the shelf behind me. I've got probably 25, 30 screenplays, television pilots that have never seen the light of day. But for every one of those, you know, oh, sorry, for every 10 or 15 of those, I've had one made. So it all counts. And those, again, are choices. And that was an early one when I was 24 years old, that that choice to do that and to take that risk. And as you get older, we take less risks mm -hmm. because we have more responsibilities. But in fact, life is about that. It's about movement. And, and you can't just take the easy choice. And every time I've gambled, every single time, ultimately, not immediately, ultimately it's paid off. Well, you're not afraid of failure either, which is another takeaway from the book. And in fact- No, I'm uh, used to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it uh, that you get used to it or is it that you learn something from it? You move to New York, six months later, seven months later, you're starring on Broadway. You could think, well, that was easy. Of course it's not. No. That was a, a confluence of events that happened to work out well for you, but but it it's, it will never be easy. So failure has to come in to temper that a little bit, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, it's that old kind of joke. I've worked uh, 25 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> You're listening to Jim Piddick on The Richard Krauss Show. His book, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, is available wherever fine books are sold. I think that, it's, again, it's a cliche, but nobody really learns much from success. Sometimes it can be interesting to other people or whatever. But you, you clearly learn from your failures um, or not. Some people don't. And sometimes I haven't learned, you know. I mean, I remember being told early on in my career by an older actor, for, I think the first job I had, he said, if you're going to make a career of this, you've got to learn to take rejection, not personally. You've got mm -hmm. to realise it's not personal. And he's right. Of course it's not. And you have to do that as an actor. But I still struggle with that. <laughs> I still sometimes go... Why? Why did they? Well, I mean, I, that doesn't seem right. Uh, but of course, it's nothing personal whatsoever. Um, and you just keep you get up and do it again and get up and do it again. And that's the same in any professions. Nobody gets an easy ride. Some people have easier rides than others, but nobody gets an easy ride. And um, even the people you think at one point I say in the book, I, I, I went through a period of being very envious of other people's careers because they seem to launched off into film and TV where I was not able to at that point in my life 
And I was kind of envious of all these people, my, my peers in New York theater who were suddenly stars or had their own TV shows. And I was really couldn't get that door open at that particular time. And then I now look back and I go to each of those people I was so envious of, um, the vast majority haven't survived as long as I have. And the vast majority have had to deal with death or illness or you know, losing bankruptcy various things that have happened in their life that I have not had to deal with. Uh, so, you know, it, the grass is always greener and it's so easy to compare yourself to someone else. And it's just no good comes of that. The only person you've got to compete against is yourself. And again, I'm sounding like a terrible self-help guru and I'm not. So please don't, don't think that this book is going to be preaching to you because if it's preaching to anyone, it's just preaching to myself. Uh, and hopefully the rest will entertain you with the, the craziness of the things that have happened. This memoir, unlike many memoirs, names names. Yeah. Larry David is a, a, an a-hole of the highest order, and I explain why in the book. If I'd written this book when I was in my 20s or 30s, I would have been way more cautious. It's like, I'll never work again. Um, now I'm in my 60s. Uh, by the way, back then I wouldn't have had anything to write about, but... Um, <laughs> Now I've got something to write about, and I really, really, really don't care anymore about that. And that, so again, it's a flyer, it's a risk. I did make sure with a lawyer that um, there's nothing that's libelous because A, it's all true, and B, I, I did it in a way that was, I think, kind and understanding, I hope, uh, or I would say I didn't understand this person's behavior. Right. Um, and I may be wrong, and I said, you can absolutely, again, judge a book by its cover, you can actually catch someone on a bad day and and I've often there was a couple of people in the book I talk about who my first impression was oh these are really awful people and then they turn out to be lovely so uh, you can be wrong um and if I'm wrong I'm wrong Jim thank you so much what a pleasure to speak to you thank you so much and I really appreciate you doing your homework and reading it and, and asking such very very smart and perceptive questions thank you oh well thank you very much thank you very much that was Jim Piddick on The Richard Krauss Show. His book, Caught With My Pants Down and Other Tales from a Life in Hollywood, is a funny and frank memoir that you can find now wherever fine books are sold. A big thanks to Jim Piddick. Also, a big thanks to Bonnie Stern. Her new cookbook, Don't Worry, Just Cook, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird. And we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah.